There we go. Hello, everyone. This is Jeff Anderson. And Bud Green. Although, and Jeff, I, I think what you mean to say is uh, Breaker 1-9, Breaker 1-9, this is peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> you know what? Nobody's going to know what that is. They're just going to think that's – like, people who haven't heard this, the Fred, Friday Reload before, they're just going to think that's your pet name for me. <laughs> so, oh, which is just creepy. Dark, and it's like a dark turn. Um, <laughs> well, for those of you who are just joining us, this is my ongoing campaign to humiliate Jeff over the lamest CD nicknames in the history of time. Uh, we were talking about Citizens Band radios, and uh, Jeff made the mistake of revealing uh, that as a child he once referred to himself as uh, peanut butter and or peanut butter and jelly. And so I've, I've not, I'm not letting him forget it. I don't, I don't remember what my actual handle was. I just remember us having, like my stepfather was, uh, he was an electrician and, and he was really into trucking and stuff like that. And, and we had a CB radio in the car. And for us kids, it was always just a lot of, a lot of fun to get on there. And that would, it was, was, we used to get on there and just like do the, the typical, um, you know, CB radio stuff. And it was, it was probably extremely annoying for the other truckers out there. You know, pro- there was probably this whole period of time when BJ and the Bear and Move On and all those and Smokey and the Bandit were on. Convoy. Yeah, Convoy. It, it was probably the most annoying time period for truckers because now what they did on a daily basis was they had a bunch of, like, seven-year-olds getting on there saying, Breaker 1-9, this is peanut butter and jelly, come back. Giggle, 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 giggle. It was it was also, though, it was the 1970s. It was like the throbbing heart of the 1970s. There's no more annoying time in popular culture, as far as I know. That's that's true. There's probably been a lot of people in fashion. It was a difficult time. My wife and I always argue over what music we put on the uh, on the radio. We have Sirius. We have the... Uh, you know, the satellite radio, and she's always got that damn thing on, like, 70s on 7 or something like that, which was, like, my least favorite period of of music. Uh, there was lots of good music there, and that's, and that's why, like, anything comes on that I, I, I like a song, she's like, oh, see, that's 70s. That's the 70s. And I'm like, yeah, but that's not, the, that's not the music I'm talking about. There was just, like, a whole dorky phase of the 70s, it's just like the 80s, too. It was like, okay, there was good music in the 80s. And then we had Boy George. You know, so I mean, the, every era has its. The 1980s, the 1970s, by contrast, brought up disco, and then the my favorite, the disco backlash. I once saw an interview with one of the guys from the Bee Gees, and he was like, "You know, we were on top of the world, and everyone liked our stuff, and then suddenly they hated us, and we were burning our records." And you could tell the poor man just didn't understand what he'd done wrong. He was just like, he just needed a hug. <laughs> Hug a BG. Hug a BG today. <laughs> oh, I'm going to isolate that one for the next commercial. <laughs> Jen Anderson loves the beach. Oh, man. My wife I'm does. I'm not sure why that's wrong. It's I don't know. Crazy. Yeah, you're right. So, there's a whole bunch of people. So, my wife loves the BGs. She loves the BGs. Uh, anyway, this isn't, this really isn't about me and my therapeutic needs for, you know, dealing with my wife and her 70s and Bee Gees obsession. This really is just about the Friday reload. So welcome everybody. Uh, this is Jeff Anderson and this is Buck Green. And this is our opportunity on Fridays to, to just kind of chat and come up with the quick tips of stuff that we've covered on the blog or what's happening in the news or whatever. This is just our own little 
well, let's face it, it's just about us. It's about us and our opinions and kind of getting stuff out there and just having fun with it. So, um, so anyway, there, it was kind of, it was kind of light on the blog this week anyway, but there's enough in the news to talk about that I think is really, you know, so this is a, a very, uh, interesting time period. I've been thinking a lot about this this week and I'll explain why, but it's a, it's a very interesting time period that we've got going on here. Um, anyway, let's go ahead and start with the blog though. I'll, I'll go ahead and start because like I said, we only had a few posts, uh, this week and one of them was for, uh, it was our podcast on Tuesday that we released this week and it was with Stephen Mosley on airsoft training, tactical airsoft training. And there's a little bit of, of something in this for everybody. So there's a, for those people that aren't familiar with airsoft, it talks about what it is. Uh, but then it talks about how to choose the best airsoft gun and different things. Like if you're going shopping, how to find the best one and then how to use it. We put some tactical drills in there that you can use that Stephen uses at his training center. And, uh, you know, this is, if, if you've never, if you don't have an airsoft gun, I think there's a, there's a lot of, I won't say mystery around this, but like misinformation or myths around it because it's seen as like a toy because kids, I mean, you can go into, you know, the local department store now and you can get air, there's airsoft guns for kids. I mean, it's taken the place of the cap gun. So, you know, it's really inexpensive to do. I mean, they're, they're really cheap guns, but the kind that we're talking about are, are really realistic. And I have one. And, and this week, uh, one of our, one of our employees, uh, Jacob, who's in the military and, and works for us was out and, and we were getting ready to go down to the range, do some shooting and stuff like that. And, and I pulled out my, I have my, my Glock 19 and then I pulled out the airsoft gun. And you can't tell the difference at first glance looking at them. Even picking them up, they feel the same. It's like a, it's a one for one replica of my Glock 19. And it's a gas blowback version. So it doesn't have the same kick, obviously, as a real gun, but it has a little bit of, of a kick in your hand. There's no loud bang like a real gun, but, but that's fine. You know, whatever. So there, there is a place for live fire shooting. What brand is your gas blowback block? Uh, is it like a KSG or something like that? Um, I think it is a KSG. I don't know, but what's interesting about mine, which I don't necessarily, I don't agree with, really, but it doesn't, it doesn't have the. It is a KSG. It, it does not have the the orange tip on the end of it. You know, like they're supposed well, to ha- have a safety orange tip on it. Most of them that you buy will. The thought of that. I mean, it's like when you go to the store, all of the less than Firearm weapons usually have that orange tip, all the airsoft stuff. But most BB guns do not because they are considered actual projectile weapons, even though, you know, it won't kill you, but they don't put the orange tip on there because I think they don't want you to get lulled into a false sense of safety because a BB gun is something you don't want to be shooting people with, even though it's not going to be fatal. And I think some of those more powerful gas blowback airsoft weapons fall into that category, although I'm not sure what the actual law is because I know when you buy any airsoft weapon, unless it comes into the country from like Japan or something, I think they all do have that orange tip on them. I, I know it, the, there are different laws in different countries. And if you go on the airsoft sites that specifically cater to the huge market for Japanese made high, uh, high dollar airsoft weapons, they don't have the, the orange on them because uh, among other things, Japanese can't own real firearms. There's a huge market for replica firearms. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I know that's true of 
there are inert replicas. Uh, there are several companies like uh, Denix in Spain, I think they are, that make high-end replicas of firearms, and it doesn't do anything. It just looks like a gun. Um, and there's a there's a federal law that says any weapon that is a replica of a gun made after such and such a year in like the 1800s has to have an orange plug in the barrel. So, like, you can buy a Colt Peacemaker, which is before whatever that cutoff year is, and it doesn't have the orange tip in it. But if you buy a Denix AK-47, there's a little tiny orange plug in the barrel. But, of course, just looking at it from across the room, except for that plug, you would not know the difference. Dude, you're way too much of a dork with this stuff. <laughs> well, Nobody should no, know have... this much information about the uh, the genealogy of airsoft guns and and orange tips. I have no life. It, it comes. It's remarkably handy. It's amazing oh, what you can do when you have no actual life. <laughs> well, so anyway, I we uh, he was really surprised to see this. Like he, it was the first time he'd ever pulled the trigger. I mean, he, he does way more firearms training than I do. Like this this kid does classes and. And, uh, you know, so he instructs and he's in the military and he's shooting guns all the time. And he, he was, he was raised, you know, since he was like five years old with guns. And, uh, he was blown away by the realism of, of the gas blowback airsoft pistol. And so, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of great information in, in the podcast that was put out this past week. So if you, if you have not yet used airsoft or if you're just getting to know it or whatever, this is um this is your opportunity to really take a look at, at the benefits of it and how to get started with it and how to choose the right one. I mean it's not it's not really inexpensive for a good airsoft gun. I think mine was $150 for the uh for the pistol itself and and then you always have to get an extra magazine. I don't even think that's in the, I don't think that's in the podcast, but you definitely want to get like an extra magazine. My extra magazine was like $35 just for that. Uh, because that's where the that's where the the gas is and everything. So I mean, it's not just a piece of metal. So, it, you know, but go ahead. People get bent out of shape when it comes to the cost of some of these things, and they don't. They're not looking at that cost in the proper context. When you're buying a, a high-end airsoft weapon that closely replicates your live firearm, you're investing in a training tool that's going to last you a very long time, hopefully. Uh, it's like when you buy. The search laser training pistol, which we've talked I was about before. Just going to bring that up. About, yeah, yeah. We, we talk about both those tools in the in the dirt cheap gun training uh, program, and, and those the search training pistol. If you buy the nice one with the metal slide, that's a couple of hundred bucks at least, if not more. You know, and, and you get into a price range where people are like, well, heck, I could just buy a, a real gun for that. Well, yeah, you could, but you're not going to use it to train with, and that's the whole point. You're investing in training equipment and training tools that will serve you for a long period of time. Well, and that and that is our point also is that you could, you know, a really a, a regular gun and ammo and going to the range, all that's going to cost money anyway. And and my thing, and this is kind of like our always our bottom line foundation is that you get much more realistic. The the real training when it comes to home defense and personal defense isn't in your shot group. It's not in in whether or not your gun is performing the way that you want it to in the range. As we always say, you know, most Real gunfights happen less than nine feet away. When you're, when you're going to be attacked by somebody, they're not going to come at you like a high noon out in the middle of the street and give you, you know, 40 yards to be able to, or, or 15, you know, 15, 15 yards, like a lot of people do at the range. You know, they try and see how, how accurate they can be, be at a distance. 
and how tight their shot group can be. You're not going to have your sights in a real gunfight, not where the the bullets are flying. And it, and I'm just I'm picturing this old west scenario where the guy in the black hat comes down the street and his hand is drifting towards the butt of his gun. He's like, my old enemy, peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> town ain't big enough for the both of us. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, that's, but that's, I don't know, I mean, I don't think that's the way people even envision it, really. I don't think they really envision that, you know, this is, this is the whole disconnect, I think. Like, when people go to the range and they put the target that far away, I, I truly believe that people are thinking of it in terms of a flat paper target. They're thinking in terms of their shot group. They're not looking at that flat paper target as, that's a person. What's the scenario that I'm shooting against right now? They're, they're strictly putting the paper up on the clip, sending it down about 15, you know, seven to 15 yards. And then they're, you know, you can't draw on it on most ranges. So it's basically just you're shooting at that paper target. And so they're not thinking in terms of, okay, let me in, let me even just use my mind to envision that this is a person. What is this person doing? Why are they a threat? Like really put yourself in a scenario and then fire at, at the, even if it's at the paper target. I think pretty much 99% of the people that are at the range are just putting it down there and seeing how tight they can get their shot group. And that's not really going to prepare you for for combat. Because even even if you have the argument of, well, you know, but you're but you're pulling the trigger, like you're programming yourself that there is a threat of whatever it is and you're and you're pulling the trigger. Like even if you can just condition your muscle memory to just, okay, if there's a threat pull the trigger. I've been in combat and I can tell you right now, I mean, there's, there's nobody that gets more firearms training than like than soldiers, right? I mean, even carrying live fire ammo down streets. And I've seen in combat guys who I mean, we've, we've done years and years of force on force training. And when it comes time to actually pulling the trigger on somebody, even, even sometimes when somebody's firing at you, it's, it's a totally different story. People freeze up. I've seen guys just curl up in a ball and just start crying. It, there's a whole mental aspect of it that you're not going to get at the range. You need something more realistic. And so that's why I say, you know, the, the real training when it comes to home defense and personal defense is done in the scenario itself. It's in the realism that you can you can put into it. It's about doing it in your home, which is your environment. It's not the range. It, it programs your mind for your living room, your front door, you know, around your car. There's so much that you can do. And airsoft to me is it's even better than I mean I have a cert gun as well which is which was way more expensive than my than my airsoft gun was and less realistic. So uh, anyway, if you if you haven't yet discovered airsoft, you absolutely absolutely must go out re- go through this uh, the podcast that we just released because it, it gives you all the information that you need to get started with it there as, as well as some some step by step drills that are in there. But it, to me, if you if you truly own a firearm for defense and you care about that, then there is no better training. There just isn't. Just uh, totally as an aside, Jeff, every time it comes up, I mean to ask, and I always forget, where was it that you saw combat? Was it like Grenada or something like that? Uh, Panama. When was, was that? Uh, <laughs> I know, it's like the forgotten combat zone. Uh, that was in 89, 90. And then, uh, so that was... That was my, uh, I'll, I'll try and make it quick, but I was in the 10th Mountain Division and, uh, which is up in, in Fort, 
Fort Drum, New York, and we we were the first unit to reactivate the 10th Mountain Division from World War II. And it was a it was a a, a light infantry unit, a rapid deployment. It was um, we had all the the best cutting edge gear and everything, but it was in the middle of freaking Watertown, New York, like four feet of snow all but one day of the year, and I just froze my ass off for three and a half years. And I was getting ready to go into special forces, and they lost my packet like right before I was getting ready to reenlist for it, <clears throat> and. And I, and I had to reenlist. I was like right at the end of my enlistment period. Um, they, they couldn't find my packet, couldn't find my packet. Then they just said, you know, we lost it. You're going to have to go through all the training again and everything. So I was at the point where I had to reenlist. So I, I had to go back through my MOS. And so I was out in the middle. We were, we were in, uh, we we're doing, we we're out in the woods basically for, um, for field training. And I just remember it was freezing. And it was like I had to reenlist that day. It was like my last day. And the, and the recruiter came out in a Humvee trying to get through all the ice and snow. I'm freezing my ass off. He's like, okay, here's the deal. I've got two places that you can go, Alaska or Panama. <laughs> I was like, that's that's really, that's a choice, <laughs> you know, more snow. Or I know the I knew that Panama was somewhere in the tropics. And, uh, so I said, well, that's a no brainer. Sign me up for Panama. So we signed up right there, reenlisted and went down there and it was paradise. Panama was absolute paradise for one week. And it was like, I had one weekend on the beach with little umbrella and the drink and everything. And then all of a sudden bullets <laughs> were flying everywhere. And so it was a very, it was a relatively, uh, fast, uh, com, you know, combat period. Uh, it, it was uh, all urban warfare at the time. It was, you know, it was a lot of urban warfare. And um, but I'd been trained. We didn't train for that in Panama, but I was trained for that in 10th Mountain Division. And and then so a lot of units came in. And then once we had taken control of the country, they they left. But because I was there, the rest of my year there, because it was a one year tour at the time was spent going out into the jungle and looking for all the bad guys that got away from the Noriega regime. And so it was a, it was a lot of time in the jungle going through small villages and things like that and just tracking down like um like do- the Dr. Evil, you know, torture dude that Noriega had on 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 staff and it was things like that. So it was a whole year of of basically just spending time in the jungle and looking for bad guys. Was it Noriega that we cornered in an embassy and played Van Halen at him until he came out? It was actually in a uh, like a church, and they. <laughs> I remember. Um, I remember going out there. They did all sorts of of mental warfare type stuff. They they would run a because he dressed up as a nun to get inside of there. Then he was in there. Then he had sanctuary, and then they would over the loudspeakers because we had them circled, and over the loudspeakers they would play like a dying rabbit sound, like screaming of a rabbit. Yeah, I've heard that, actually. I've, I've heard a cat carrying a baby rabbit before, and I I was a kid, and I remember thinking, I didn't know that rabbits made noise. That's amazing. That's yeah. Horrible. So that was, you know, CIA brilliant idea, you know, number 27. <laughs> That's kind of a Friday at 4.30 p.m. CIA meeting idea. Like, like man, I just want to start the weekend here at the Central Intelligence Agency. I, I don't know. Dying rabbit. Okay, good enough for me. Let's go. Yeah, can you see them around the board table? Like, okay, we need we need a really annoying sound. Uh, <laughs> uh, whining kids. 
Uh, I can I can tape my wife. She won't even know it. Stephen, right. um, you you finish that secret poison dart pistol. I'll work on recording the sound of the guy in the next cubicle clipping his fingernails. <laughs> yeah. And finally, Honoria is like, enough, enough. All right. <clears throat> uh, well, the the next item on the blog that we did have was three common home defense mistakes that can get you killed. And I always enjoy anything from uh, Masad Ayuk. Uh, I, I've interviewed him on our uh, uh, ISTQC broadcast, I want to say, more than once. Uh, we, Masad and I spoke right after the whole uh, uh, George uh, Zimmerman. George Zimmerman. But George Zimmerman, Trayvon Martin shooting, uh, and he was not allowed to actually address yeah. The, the Trayvon Martin shooting because there was, I want to say there was a possibility he could be an expert witness. I don't know if he ever actually was. I don't recall. Mm-hmm. But Masada, uh, in that broadcast and also in the blog post, talks about various home defense issues. And this one, three common home defense mistakes that can get killed, includes what may be one of the funnier images that you can put up on the blog, <laughs> which is the guy forcibly shoving a home invader out of his out of his doorway, and, and the little thought, or the little speech bubble says, "I told you, no more Girl Scout cookies." <laughs> Which, girls, I, don't know, I saw that night. Those girls are relentless. <laughs> well, and that's one big busted-looking Girl Scout coming <laughs> into the store. But uh, and, and he covers some stuff that you would think is so basic as to be something you wouldn't even need to think about, and yet people make this mistake all the time. And the first one is inefficient locks and alarms. And I know from talking to Masad. Some people just don't lock their doors or turn on the damn alarm. And if you don't do that with consistency, of course, you're leaving yourself wide open. And, you know, we all think, well, that's not going to happen to me. And it never does until it does. Yeah. You know, the, the actual possibility of a home invasion is relatively low, but it's still possible. And you don't get to know if you're going to be the lucky winner of a home invasion. Um, home defense mistake number two was telling everyone you know about your valuables. Uh, and, and that's a, that's a big one. We live in this culture where the poorest people are the proudest of their giant, stupid televisions. You know, it, it seems like the less money you have, the more you have really expensive stuff that you can't wait to tell people about or post pictures of on Instagram or, or Twitter or, or things like that. And if you don't think people are going to target you that way, you're a moron. One of the things that I always try to do is like right after Christmas, when all the big new toys are under the Christmas tree, when it comes time to get rid of those boxes, the last thing you want to do is leave like a giant big screen Vizio television box at the curb that says, Hey, got a great big new TV you might want. Uh, you know, I try to break all that stuff up and throw it away where it's not visible. Um, and then home defense mistake number three is simply opening your front door to strangers. Uh, how many times have you just opened the door and be like, hey, who's this guy? And, you know, it turns out to be anything from the aforementioned Girl Scout cookies to Jehovah's Witnesses to, you know, some guy taking a survey or, you know, the guy who wants to read the gas meter, whatever. But if you think about the number of times you leave yourself vulnerable, um, I remember there was a survey floating around the Internet, and it was, you know, how paranoid are you? One of those things was, you know, I always answer the door with a weapon, as if you're just hiding behind your couch, covered in sweat, with a gun held up by your ear, and, and you're, you're just waiting for someone to knock, so you can rush over to the people and go, who's out there? But, but the fact is, when somebody you don't know knocks on your door, that is a potential security threat. You need to assess what's going on. Um, if you're 
door is laid out in such a way that you don't know if there's anybody nearby, you need to either take more uptight security measures or address the visibility problems. Because if you can look at your people and see one guy, but there's four more guys in the immediate vicinity just waiting for the door to crack open, then you are potentially vulnerable for a home invasion. There was uh, just in the news this morning, I woke up and I have my clock radio set to the local news talk station. The first thing they were talking about was a conviction in a brutal home invasion uh, that happened uh, last year sometime where these guys broke into a, a guy's house and pistol with him and took a bunch of valuables and stuff. And, you know, it happens. It may be rare, but it does happen. Yeah. Well, we think it's rare. I mean, I think it happens a lot more than than we know because it hasn't happened to us or maybe somebody that we know. But, I mean, when we ran – we did one of our call-in shows where we had all of our all of our you know, listeners – you know, we called in and everybody was giving their own tips and stuff like that. And it was on home invasion. And we had like, if I remember like three people that called in or wrote in, like they wrote in their, their comments and questions and said that they'd had a, like a friend of theirs that was held hostage for three days. I remember one guy was like, uh, the guy and his wife, not that the person that called in, but their friends were, uh, they had a home invader come in, and they were held captive in a closet for three days. And the and the captors were in the in the house. So I mean, it, again, like you said, it's one of those things where you never think it'll happen to you until it actually does. And I'm not a big fan of living my life in paranoia, but it's the training and it's the it's the simple precautions you do that can make a difference. And I'm. I'm definitely guilty of of sometimes not locking my door or setting the alarm and 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 just little things like this like this article should be a wake up call. They should all a lot of people say they might think that it's basic, but then when they if they were to truly ask, well, but do you do that? It's like, well, no, but I mean I know to do it. It's not, you know, this is this is really basic information. And I guess that's yeah. why Mass said that these are the top 3 things because people just don't do them or they don't pay attention to them. Well, it's just like in any uh, martial arts class, there are people who say, well, you know, the basics are boring, but you ask the instructors, what is the thing you want your students to do most? They say, well, I'd really like it if their basics were good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that, actually, those are the only two things that we had on the blog this week. It was a slacker week, but there actually was a lot going on. But, you know, something, um, I'm, I'm seeing everything Ebola now. Everything Ebola. So I wanted to bring that up because even even my wife, who <clears throat> anybody that's tuned in, in the past knows that my wife and I just you know don't see eye to eye on uh, nat, not not naturally on on a lot of stuff nationally in in the political area or in especially in the preparedness area. But you know it's nice for her to just have the that that quiet little knowledge in the back of her brain that her husband is at least taking care of all of this stuff. But even she is like texting me all the time as she's watching the news, like, you know, third case of Ebola. Now it's a, you know, it's a nurse in Dallas and it's close to us. I mean, it's three and a half, uh, it's about four hours away from us that all this stuff is happening in in Dallas and everything. And I'm never coming to visit you. (laughs) Yes, you are. And I'm putting you right through Dallas. You have no choice. You got to go through Dallas. Never coming. Never, never. (laughs) But it's, I will be under my bed breathing through a snorkel tube. There you go. That's the only way to hold back the Ebola pandemic. And, and it, you know, people are really building up this furor around it. And we've written in the past, like, like I know more cases keep coming up and, and it keeps getting dramatized by the, by the news. But, 
you know, people need to, I guess, you know, really take a step back. Like I'm, people always could, like, I won't say people. Every now and then we get a few knuckleheads who just, who just, um, accuse me of like fear porn. Like all I'm trying to do is just make everybody afraid. No, it's, it's about exposing true threats that are out there. And this is one of the ones where we're like, you know, this truly isn't, you know, the reason why this is a, such a health concern is because of the culture that is in Africa and how easily it can spread there. And I remember, I think this week the CDC came out and said that Ebola is going to be, or, you know, or is the, the largest public health threat of this century or in history or something like that because of how easily it is able to be spread in Africa. And, and it's got a lot of people worried over here. And for me, as far as like pandemics go, like I'm less, I'm not really concerned about Ebola. It doesn't mean like I'm, you know, I'm going out and I'm eating fruit bat meat, you know, for lunch at the local diner. But it means that it's one of those things that can be contained. The problem is in Africa, they have no means to contain it. You know, it's it, it, the culture there is not like the culture here. And so it's, you know, it, it is easily spread over there. I mean, same thing like with AIDS. I mean, you know, they did they they don't have the you know over in Africa it was their their way of dealing with AIDS on a on a village basis or whatever was to have sex with you know young virgin girls because they didn't have it and, you know like you do <laughs> yeah you know it's just the way you know way way anybody would naturally do it but so it's it's the same thing it's like they don't have the the culture to be able to contain it they don't have the 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 general common sense among a population to take precautionary steps to contain it. And so it's going to spread. Now, we do need to keep... Here's what worries me, though, about Ebola. We have long held this belief that, you know, the reason we can't have nice things is because Africa. They're going to mess it up. And this was uh, borne out when they started freaking out over the presence of doctors spreading Ebola around, or so they thought. And uh, a bunch of people raided a clinic in uh, Africa where... Ebola patients were being treated and like stole the blood stain sheets and stuff. It's like, oh good, spread that around. Uh, but we've had this attitude that, well, they're Africa, they can't handle it, they don't have the culture, they don't have the means. But then we get Ebola patients here in the United States and what does the CDC do? They tell a woman who treated an Ebola patient who was running a fever, eh, go ahead and get on a plane. It's all right. It'll be fine. You know, your, your, your fever is a 0.5 degrees below the threshold. So, we figure you don't have it, but go ahead and fly. You know, we, uh, then there's the containment issue. They still don't know why those nurses who treated uh, Thomas Duncan got Ebola, and supposedly they were wearing protective gear, but oh, magically they're sick now. And every, you know, the the 50 people they talk to and the 50 people those 50 people talk to are all now at risk for the virus. It's terrifying out there, and it's gotten to the point where when the government says you can't get Ebola this way, you can't get Ebola that way. We all go, yeah, okay, I believe you. Yeah. Well, I think there is good, I mean, I think there's good information on Ebola. But, and, and, but I, what I heard now is that, like the, 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 you know, I mean, let's face it, hospitals are not, like they're not well controlled. I mean, they're basically a business. I mean, they're run by a board and that board is typically made of a combination of doctors and bankers. And I mean, it, it is an investment. Their, their goal is to, make money for the most part. And so just like any corporation, I've, I've worked at the heads of, of a few of them, 
it's all about, you know, and it's expense line items. And so protective gear for things like things like battling a a potential pandemic are not typically in the, yeah, let's spend money on this because it might happen some year. It's, it's really, and, and I don't think they're getting the, the equipment and stuff fast enough or they're not being, I don't think it's being well managed. And some of, and I think the last person that was the last nurse that was just infected, my understanding was that she didn't have the protective gear that she should have had because it was not an expense that they, the hospital wanted to have or something like that. And by, you know, by the time it became news, it was too late. But, you know, it's, again, I always, I always come back to fucking corporations, but, um, you know, this, this, we've, it's just, it's so much about like we put money into all the things that have to do with our health and, and, and everything. And it's like when it becomes a line item, an expense or a decision based upon money, you know, I think government wise, we need to make sure that doesn't happen, especially when it's something like this. Even if it's not as much of a threat as people think it is, it's the fact that people think it is. And, and that right there is, you know, that's what's building up so much drama and, and reaction. Well, and you can almost hear the folks in the government having their meetings going, we need to avoid a panic. Yeah. And and then proceeding to do incredibly stupid things. Like, I think political correctness has in large part driven our Ebola policy to the extent that we have one up to this point. So when we refuse to restrict travel, the people come out of the world we're saying, well, you know, that's not perfect and we can't get all the flights. Like, Yes, by all means, let's not try and reduce the variables a little. I mean, problem solving is about reducing variables. So when you refuse to restrict travel because, well, we can't get them all, you still could reduce some of those variables. And then when when our president sends 3,000 unarmed troops into Africa to supposedly fight the virus, like they're going to take out their knives and duel the virus where it lives, you know, it's... A, it's ridiculous to send our military anywhere and not arm them. But B, you know, combat troops cannot fight a virus. The the only thing you're doing when you send troops into a zone like that is exposing them to the potential for infection. Yeah. Well, I have to I have to read more about that because I'm I'm curious about what you know what the the, the real information is behind that because I've heard different things but I'm not well versed enough to be able to and I should be I'm gonna I'm gonna find out more about it. But you know, that's the thing. It's like, I, I just want the freaking truth. And so I'll, I'll use a bunch of different sources because there is a lot of fear porn out there and it, and it bugs the hell out of me. And, and what I'm always looking for is just, I just want the freaking truth, like stripped of any, you know, political B, BS or anything like this, just give me the freaking truth. And, but why does it have to be such a maze to find that? That's what pisses me off. Like about media on, on both sides, you know, it's like, you would think that you could you could go to the news and and get the truth. And the fact is, like all this stuff is just it's so vetted and it's it's there's such a a business agenda behind it. In and we've talked about this with several of our experts, you know, the media vampires and just how there's it's a, it's an information war and and it's like <clears throat> it all has to do with what we want the public to know, either for marketing purposes or for you know, political purposes or whatever. And it's like, it's such a maze just to find the right information that you can, you can use. I mean, gone are the days of the night. Yeah. We're back to the seventies, you know, like, you know, investigative journalism. What, you know, what's that now? 
yeah, re- reporters used to be ugly men with, you know, their ties at half-mast who would get in front of the camera and tell you things they didn't want to tell you with that regretful tone of, of fact. And, and these days, you know, it's a, it's a model who's reading off a teleprompter who hasn't got a thought in her empty head. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, let's go ahead and, uh, we've, uh, Let's go into the what do you know. Now, this is the, the segment of our show where Buck and I go out and we go through our blog or our comments or what's been happening and or on other blogs and pull out information that has been news to us, things that we learned this week that we didn't know last week, and we're here to share it with you. So um, I'll go first. I'll go first. Uh, I did an interview for our podcast. We'll be releasing it sometime here in the future, but... Uh, this, it was with, uh, John Whitehead of the Rutherford Institute, uh, Rutherford.org. And it was all about, uh, J- John is a, is a leading, uh, I would almost say legendary civil rights attorney. And, uh, I've just recently discovered his work and, and I was able to get on the phone with him and the work that he's done in civil rights and, and trying to, I think like since 1982 has been trying to warn people of the coming police state and, and all of the things that have facilitated this, um, particularly post nine 11 in the Bush era and that have facilitated all the things that we've been, we've been talking about this stuff a lot, but I've never put it in the, in the framework of, of how it has all fit together. In other words, we've talked about like the safe act. We've talked about how uh, survivalists now are being, uh, targeted or how your neighbor can turn you in because you've got a stockpile of survival food that they found out about and you could possibly be a terrorist. And so for a $500 reward, they could turn, you know, it's the gamble of turning you in and, and getting a spot on the news and, and it's, it's made it an, an all out war for, you know, just trying to keep your, your preparations private. Among everybody around you, your the government and your um, and your neighbors and everybody, and there there have been bills that have been passed by the government that have made this really really easy. And the picture that he paints for me, and and everybody will will have access to of the future of where we're going just be, just because of the advancements in technology and how easy how easy it is to mine. Our personal information, um, you know, this has been going on for for decades now, and I'm sure even longer than that. But facilitated by technology for for decades now, and it's only getting worse. And you can't stop it, but there is a lot that you can do personally. And we're going to be we're going to talk about some of those in in some of the upcoming stuff that we've got coming out for everybody. But um, the the biggest thing for me. What was he was talking? Well, not the biggest thing, but one of the things I'll do in, in the what do you know is is the future of drone um, technology and what it will be used for domestically. And there was already just when we started using drones and they were we were starting to look at them for use domestically, there was this big outcry that they were going to be used to basically. I think all the stuff I saw when it first came out was they were going to use to assassinate preppers at will on the highway just because, you know, they've been marked for extermination. But there there are there are some potential uses. Like anything, there are potentially good uses for drones, right? Like we can use them on the border, we could use them for whatever, you know, uh, unmanned 
you know, disaster observation, you know, whatever, search and rescue. There's there's ways that we can use them for good. But like anything, any sort of power that you have, you can use your powers for good or you can use it for evil. And it becomes this this messenger for things that could possibly be used against us. And and it's wide open, especially given just the technology that's going into these things now. And so the what do you what do you know for me is that I live in a really small town. And I remember that there was a news story uh in in Austin that our small town was leading the way in drone use. And there was a big picture of somebody with, you know, at a at a recent I don't know where what it was. It was like a demonstration or a government demonstration or something like that and I had no idea that my little town was leading the way in drone use. And we're pretty like I would almost say like like proud libertarian town. Like we're we're I mean it's Texas first of all. And so we are, we're, you know, Texans by, just by our nature are proud of our, of our independence and, and things like that. And so it was a shock to me that, uh, it's reaching out into little towns. And if, when you take a look at what's happening across the country, just with the addition of MRAPs onto local police departments and universities and schools and things like that, the militarization of, of all the weapons and equipment that we're giving literally giving like for free to different agencies and, and universities, then it, that's scary. But when a little town is on the forefront of drone use, that doesn't sound right to me. And so that's definitely something I'm looking into locally. And so my big, my big kind of aha moment is that there is so much that you can do individually to combat, um, you know, spying and, 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 um, you know this this militarization. There's a lot you can do locally, and we're we're actually compiling a bunch of that stuff now to give people truly like a handbook that you can things that you can do. Because I think a lot of people just look at it as um, it's like us versus them, and and they they have their opinions that they put on blogs and forums and things like that, but they don't think. I think a lot of people don't realize that there is stuff that you can do. And one of the things that John said, and I, and I really like this, was that a lot of people now are looking into like alternative citizenship, you know, like Argentina, or I know some people that have dual citizenships that, you know, if anything ever actually, you know, if it comes down to a police state, they're going to hightail it out of the country. And what he said was, you know, if you're a true patriot, don't, don't like leave, don't not be an American anymore, like stand and fight for your country, stand and fight for the Bill of Rights. And that doesn't mean go grab your AR-15 and get out there and, you know, take on take on the United States government. It means get involved locally, the things that you can do, and, and fight for your freedoms. And and that that I was so glad to hear him say that because, you know, I believe in America and I believe in all of the states. I don't I don't believe in secessionist states or anything like that. Like we're we're truly Americans, every single last one of us. And I hate to see the division that's happening in our country. And I hate to see the division between government and the people. And I only see that happening more and more thanks to basically a corporate fueled government that is incapable of, of coming together and achieving anything for the benefit of the people. And I know I'll start a tirade here and I'll just start getting pissed off and, and roaming around my, <laughs> my office I, with my machete in I, hand. I, may, I might as well just come right out and say <clears throat> the best way you can fight for America is this November, get out and vote. Oh, Republican! There, I said it. Don't oh, let it just please. Out. 
God. Because <laughs> you really want to piss me off. <laughs> you know, anybody that wants, I just, I hate the, I hate what politics has become. I just hate it. From because of the purest nature of what I believe that politics should be, it's become now a game of how can we cheat the other, the other side out of gaining control? Because I want my big house. I want my, I love the position. I like the backing that I get from lobbyists. Like, and, and all we've done is facilitate this, you know, year after year after year, election after election. We've made it easier and easier and easier for corporations to run our government. And it, and, and there is no good side. There is no good side. In fact, even, you know, the independent, you know, Tea Party that's come in, any, any time that there's an opportunity, any time there's a movement that's shown, corporations are going to do everything they can to get their fingers involved in it and make it theirs. And it, and it happens every single freaking time. And I just believe that it's really good. I, I've given up hope that any political party whatsoever is not going to be tainted by, by money and by power and by greed and by the complex that's behind all of this. And that's, but at that token, to me, that's liberating and it's empowering because I, I've, I've now, this is what my big aha moment was this week is that it really is by the people. And, and we've, I feel like we've got to stop saying it's the government for the people, you know, by the people. I, I think it is the people. And it's the things that we can do individually because I've given up hope on – look, I believe in voting. I believe you still you know, should find the person that best represents your your viewpoints regardless of political party that they that's tagged on to them. And it, it's become like a lock, you know, lockstep, you know, follow in line sort of a thing. And I, I don't believe in that. I believe you've got to think for yourself and act for yourself. And And that's my thing now is like, the things that people can do themselves, um, individually, irrespective of the dipshit that's, you know, trying to, you know, say anything that they can for their vote and they're backed by some lobbyist or corporate, you know, whatever. So anyway, I, my big aha moment is that we have more power as a people than we think. And it's not, it's not only at the ballot box the way that people think, but it does take getting off your ass and actually doing something about it. But there, there are things that you can do, and that's I'm excited about. I think this is going to be a major push of ours, Buck, going forward. Like I think we're going to be doing a lot more of this. But I, I got to tell you right now, it's going to piss a lot of people off because I read all the blog comments and I and I follow certain people on their comments on other blogs and things like that. And and it has become kind of this mind melding of it's just it's Obama and it's this and it's that and it's they. They become so focused in on on the shiny the shiny thing off to the right that I think we're we're falling right into the trap of of trying to isolate what the cause is and realizing that it, the rabbit hole goes much deeper than that shiny little thing that the media has told you to look at. Um, but we're gonna be we're gonna be doing a lot more on this, so we're gonna piss off a lot of people. But my mission is to really kind of awaken people to what they can do, what you can do out there on an individual basis to protect your freedom and your liberties, which are at stake. They absolutely are at stake. And this has not been going on over the last 10 years. This has been going on for decades now, and it's a machine. And there's, there's we're not going to stop it, but there are things that you can do to protect yourself and, you know, put put a halt to a lot of this. 
if you're just joining us, I am a partisan conservative <laughs> Republican, and Jeff loves North Korea. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Commie bastard. Uh, it, uh, now, in order to keep things on track in terms of paranoia and fear about viruses, my what do you know this week is about the virus that is getting sort of rooked out of the press it deserves, and that is enterovirus, specifically EDD68. Uh, enteroviruses are respiratory infections that are reported every year. Uh, they're common in the fall. However, this year, uh, enterovirus E68 has been uh, sickening very severely a, a vast number of children in the United States. And worse, we don't know why. Now, a cynical man might draw a connection between the flood of illegal aliens that we refuse to stop from coming over the border, including all those quote-unquote unattended children that supposedly came over the border because they just innocently all decided as a group to travel across the border by themselves without their parents, he said sarcastically. Um, but the fact is that uh, EVD-68 has already killed one child and has horribly sickened hundreds more. Uh, and it is something that is getting lost in the hysteria over Ebola, but actually has claimed uh, you know, more victims in terms of infections, and, and these are serious infections. If your kid gets EBD68, you know, they end up going to the, the hospital and staying there for a while. So it's a very serious infection. I mean, now, as I recall, not everyone who gets it ends up horribly, horribly sick. You know, some people it's just you wouldn't know that it's just a cold. It's just a, a respiratory infection. But there are extremely serious infections that do occur. It's a cause for concern, especially for parents across the country. Yeah, and I guess that was the point I wanted to bring up also with the Ebola was was that you know we become focused on this because it's great it's great news, but they've also you know the World Health Organization has said and we've written about several times now is that you know we're ripe for a pandemic, but I don't think it's coming from Ebola because of the way that it's transmitted. But you know they've they've been saying forever is is that overuse of antibiotics has really just kind of weakened what we're going to be able to do with the next great pandemic that might come. So it's not, you know, usually we can combat these things with medicine, but that's getting weaker and weaker being able to do that. And so, and so one of the things that I've, you know, I've always tried to do is like not use antibiotics if I don't have to, right. You know, that's, that's kind of, you know, one of those things, but the problem is, is that it's, it's not even about what you've, what you've uh, done in your body. Like in other words, um, the bugs that are happening now, They've already been through other people's bodies that they've already built up their resistance to antibiotics, period. So even if you've never used antibiotics before, if you're invaded by a host in a pandemic, that that bug itself might already be resistant to antibiotics that you might do, which, you know, that's a kind of a big awakening for a lot of people. I think I've always felt pretty protected, like, well, I've, I've rarely ever used antibiotics, so if anything ever happens, I've got, you know, a better chance of being able to survive. and actually. No, the stuff that's coming in has already been through the ringer of you know building up their resistance. So I think yeah, that there's we're actually we're running out of drugs to treat tuberculosis for that reason. Really? Yeah, that, that I read an article, a terrifying article recently that said we used to have a number of drugs that they used to treat tuberculosis. These are antibiotics, and uh, it's gotten to the point where, in terms of some of the uh, antibiotic resistant uh, tuberculosis out there, there's like one thing they have left. 
that can treat this stuff, and we're running out. Yeah. Like, like when, when that's gone, we're screwed. That's crazy. Crazy so stuff. I will be under my bed. I'm going to get my monster snorkel out, and I will be under my bed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good stuff. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's Friday Reload. And, um, boy, this took, I, th- I like how these are going. <laughs> you know, except it's, it's gonna, you know, it's eventually it's just going to pit you and me against each other. Well, I, I think more, it's more important than ever that we use our CB nicknames. Uh, henceforth, you may call me Baconator and I will refer to you with peanut butter and jelly. I thought you were like you airsoft dork, I think was what came out of this. <laughs> Uh, breaker one nine, breaker one nine. This is Baconator. Uh, peanut butter and jelly, come back. Baconator. <laughs> oh, I have a quick story on that. Um, we have a foreign exchange student with us right now. She came over from um, uh, from the Eastern Bloc. I'll just say from the Eastern Bloc area. And uh, the only food that she would not eat coming into uh, the United States that was on her thing was was pork. She did not eat pork, and it wasn't for religious reasons. She just didn't like pork. And so then she came, you know, she comes to Texas where <laughs> we're barbecue heaven here. And so he said, we asked her, it's like, have you ever had bacon? She's like, bacon? No, I've never had bacon. Well, now she likes pork after she's had bacon. In fact, yesterday we made bacon for, we had a, a meal with bacon last night and we were in the car bringing her back from, uh, my wife and I picked her up from school and, and, she, and we we're like, so we're having um, something with um, bacon tonight. And she goes, it was so funny. She goes from the back seat. She's like, I think about bacon a lot. <laughs> well, the way you said it. Know you can corrupt foreigners one person at a time <laughs> with good old-fashioned bacon. I think we could take over North Korea. I think that's our one chance to take over North Korea is just to introduce bacon. <laughs> anyway. All right, everybody. So thanks for joining us today. Uh, really, uh, I, I enjoyed the conversation today. We've got a lot of great stuff. I think that I like where we're headed as a company and, and some of the initiatives that we've got going because um, I really think that we can make a difference out there in your level of preparedness and the things that we can do um, in our mission. So I'm really looking forward to it. So so definitely check out, um, keep checking out our local podcast. Make sure that you subscribe to our podcast in iTunes and go ahead and give us a four-star rating in there. If you like what you're hearing, and trust me, if you're hearing my words right now and you've got through an hour of our drivel, then you probably there's something there that resonates with you. So give us some support and go ahead and give us a four-star rating there and leave a comment. Let us know what you think, okay? And until the next MCS Friday Reload podcast, this is Jeff Anderson or Peanut Butter and Jelly. And fuck the Baconator Green. <laughs> Saying train hard. Stay safe. And prepare now. Thanks, everyone. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can help us out by rating our podcast on iTunes and leaving a comment. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Modern Combat and Survival. And don't forget to claim your free subscription to Modern Combat and Survival magazine at www.moderncombatandsurvival.com. Lock and load. And we'll see you next time. This has been Modern Combat and Survival. When you comment on the blog, make sure you address Jeff as peanut butter and jelly. TV and J for short. <laughs> Baconator.